I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We've been going through the book of Ephesians for the last several weeks. And in covering the first three chapters, Paul, in writing the last of the letters that he wrote to the church. Now, they weren't the last letters that he wrote before he was martyred but uh, the last of the, the letters to the church. The, the uh, only other letters he wrote after the book of Ephesians or the letter to the Ephesians is uh, letters to uh, Timothy and to Titus. And, uh, and those were several years after, we believe, the, uh, the letter that was written to the Ephesians. But Paul is um, uh, taking a big picture point of view with the letter to the Ephesians. And it wasn't just intended to be for the Ephesians, but to be passed around among the other churches of Asia, what we know of as modern-day Turkey. And um, uh, Paul takes a big picture view of the church in the book of Ephesians, much more so than he does in any of the other letters that he writes. He's backing up, stepping back, so to speak, and, uh, and identifying here's what the church is and what it should be and how it should operate in the world. As a result, he gives us some information in the first three chapters about God's plan of redemption, the plan that he ordained and, and set in motion before the foundations of the world about Jesus coming to the earth about the work of the Holy Spirit to regenerate us and to make us new creatures in Christ Jesus, to show forth his wisdom. Paul says to show forth his wisdom that was a mystery or a secret hidden from the world, hidden from the ages. And that mystery that has now been revealed is to show the victory of redemption, the benefits, the characteristics, the results of redemption in our exercising victory over the devil in our everyday lives. That's what glorifies God. Paul specifically identifies the thing that brings God glory more than anything else. The singing is good. We want to do that. Praying is good. The Bible tells us to do that. We want to do the things that we think of as being glorifying to God. But the Bible says that the thing that glorifies God the most is our exercising the devil's defeat, victory over the devil because of the work of Jesus on the cross to overcome the devil's attacks in our everyday lives. As a result, Paul starts in chapter 4 and he changes gears a little bit. Now he's going to talk practically. It'd be one thing if we ended the book of Ephesians at the end of chapter 3 and said, well, this is what the church is supposed to look like. This is what things are supposed to be, how they're supposed to be. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? But if he doesn't tell us how to accomplish our part, then what good is it? We're left with a goal that we can't attain. So he starts with the practical part in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of vocation wherewith you're called. Then for the next 16 verses, he talks about how that we're one body joined to the Lord by one spirit, the Holy Ghost. He tells about the ministry gifts that are given to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry so that the body of Christ is built up and increased. And then in verse 17, he goes back to the, the, the thought that he had in verse 1, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you're called. Verse 17, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. In other words, he's saying, this is not me. This is the Holy Ghost. Paul understood, as we should understand, the difference between what we think and what we're saying and what the Holy Ghost is saying through us. And that's what he's identifying to these churches. He said, this I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord. In other words, it's him that's it's given it me to say it. That you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Now, the word other is not in the original transcript. He said that you walk not as Gentiles walk. Now, the reason the translators added it, because these are Gentiles that he's writing to. 
And so the translators look at this and say, well, he can't be talking about Gentiles because they're Gentiles too. And therefore, he must mean other Gentiles, unsaved Gentiles. But that's not what Paul is saying at all. Paul is saying the new birth makes a third class of individuals. There's Jews, there's Gentiles, and then there are those who are redeemed. Paul does not even identify them any longer as Gentiles because they're in Christ Jesus. And that's going to be important because the rest of the chapter is going to talk about a change of identity. So he says, I implore you by the word of the Lord, by the unction of the Holy Ghost, that you walk not as the Gentiles do. Not that you walk not as the unsaved. Now, the Gentiles represent the unsaved portion of the world. The Jews represent those that were given the word of God through the law of Moses. Many and most of which in Paul's day as well as in our day have rejected and held fast to the law of Moses and rejected the good news of Jesus. So he says, I implore you that you henceforth walk not as Gentiles walk. How do they walk? How does the unsaved walk? In the vanity of their mind. In the vanity of their mind. Folks, here's the problem with the unsaved world. Here's the reason why people that are unsaved are unsaved. They're walking according to the vanity of their minds. Verse 18, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Notice it's a progression. Ignorance, ignorance, darkness, and blindness. Who being past feeling have given themselves over under lasciviousness, that's sexual immorality, to work all uncleanness. Uncleanness is impure sexual thoughts. With greediness, but you have not so learned Christ. Now I'm going to uh, look back to Romans chapter 1. Uh, with, uh, before I make any comments on these uh, uh, verses that we just read, verses uh, 17, 18, and 19, Paul has written the letter to the Romans some, t- some years before. And he knows that the letter to the Romans has been widely circulated. He knows that the Ephesians have heard, uh, if they haven't read the letter, they've certainly heard the principles the, uh, that he uh, presented in the book of Romans. And if it's the Holy Ghost that's giving Paul utterance to write both letters to the Romans as well as to the Ephesians, as well as every other letter he wrote to the church, then the Holy Ghost is not going to contradict one letter with another letter, is he? If it's really the Word of God, it's really inspired by the Word of God, then there's going to be consistency. As a result, Paul is not bringing out whole new thoughts to the Ephesians. It's not like he's saying, well, okay, this is my last letter. I'm about to, uh, you know, a couple of years now, and I'll be going home to be with the Lord. So... I've really been holding back the good stuff. He's been sharing the good stuff all along. And so in in the the letter to the Ephesians, he summarizes or encapsulates some of the things that he taught to the Romans about the unsaved world. So I'm going to go back to Romans chapter 1 and start reading in verse 21. The thought that Paul is bringing out in uh, this first chapter is that God has given through the creation every man the opportunity to see him. You ever wondered why so much of the world looks at the creation and thinks that it evolved? That's always baffled me. They look at the, the, and medical science comes up with more information about how man is made and and the intricacies of the the human body and the mind and and things like that. And, And somehow somebody thinks that there was just some big bang and everything just made itself from there. What idiot could think that? Well, the answer is real simple. One that's operating according to the vanity of his mind. And that's what Paul is speaking of. I'll begin in Romans chapter 1 verse 21. Paul speaking of the unsaved says. Because that when they knew God. Through the creation. Through the the things that are seen here in the earth. 
because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. That means they didn't recognize him as the creator. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. In other words, they chose to think what they wanted to think instead of what they saw with their eyes to be true. They became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Same progression that Paul talks about in Ephesians. He says, when you choose, and you need to understand this, folks, this is not just for the unsaved. This is the way the devil works with everybody. There are a lot of Christians that are operating in this way, not where Jesus is concerned, but where the benefits of redemption are concerned. Instead of thinking according to the truth, instead of accepting what the Bible says to be true, they become vain in their own imaginations. I am amazed at all the theories that people come up with for why, the, why tongues is not for today. When the Bible says, Jesus said, I'll give you the Holy Ghost and he'll abide with you forever. I guess forever meant until the apostles died for them. I'm amazed with the ideas that people come up with with why healing is not for today. I'm amazed with the excuses and the explanations that people come up with for why Jesus really didn't mean what he said when he said, the works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these shall you do because I go unto my Father. And the explanation is always some real hard, difficult thing. It just meant the apostles. Well, it couldn't just mean the apostles because we see healings taking place even beyond the apostles. What about healings that happen today? Well, God doesn't want everybody healed. Maybe God's doing his thing somehow or another. People twist all kinds of truth and all kinds of scriptures up to come up with their own idea. And the answer is always the same. The reason is always the same, and that is because people become vain in their own thinking. They think their thoughts are more true than the Bible. And that's a form of idolatry. You worship your own thoughts rather than the truth of God. So Paul is saying because that when they knew God, here's the reason that the unsaved are in the condition that they are. Here's the reason that the world is in the shape that it's in. You know, there's, uh, there's some uh, teaching that, uh, that is, has always been in place. But there are some people that are teaching that are, that are gained popularity over the last, oh, I don't know, 20 years, 15 years, something like that. That the idea is that God is in control. But folks, let me tell you something. If God's in control, he's got things in a mess. Are you out there? If God is in control, he's schizophrenic. Because he's doing good sometimes and doing bad other times. No, God's not in control. The God of this world, who the Bible identifies as Satan, is in control. And we can all agree that the world is in a mess, can't we? Things are upside down. The truth is a lie and the lie is the truth. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God or creator. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. And their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible, uncorruptible God into an image made unto the corruptible man. Like to corruptible man. And to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Here's the next part that Paul talks about in Ephesians. Gave them up to uncleanness. One of the things that amazed me about this trip that we took to the, um, uh, this Journey's Paul trip that we took um, in November um, was that I always had the idea somehow, and I'd never done a lot of studying, a lot of, a lot of historical readings on Rome and that kind of stuff. I had a working knowledge of it, but eh, never had really been that interested in it. 
But when I got to um, some of the places that Paul went and Paul preached, the thing that amazed me that was so clearly identified from the archaeology and the archaeological ruins and, and the temples of these gods that the Bible talks about and stuff like that, the thing that amazed me is that homosexuality was not the issue. And somehow or another, I just always had the idea. And I, honestly, I guess it goes back to my Baptist upbringing. Because the thing that we emphasized, we meaning they, the Baptist church emphasized about the last days and the Antichrist was that homosexuality was going to be the thing. Well, with the rise of gay marriage and homosexuality and the acceptance and all that kind of stuff that's happening in our present day, it just fed into my idea that it was the homosexuality is going to be the issue. But in ancient Rome and Asia, this part of the world that uh, Paul is writing to, homosexuality was not the issue. Sexuality was the issue. And it wasn't just that people were, men were having sex with other men or women were having sex with other women. People were having sex with anybody and everything, that, anybody and everyone and everything that they wanted to. It was a sexual, uh, anything goes, smorgasbord type of thing. Now in Rome, there were some things that, uh, that, that weren't um, accepted to be made public. But there was nothing that was off limits. Pedophilia, bestiality. There was nothing in ancient Rome that was off limits, and you could get access to anything and everything you wanted, any time and every time you wanted to get it. Now, like I said, there were some things you didn't come out and publicly and say, "And well, here's what I'm doing." But as long as you were smart enough to kind of keep it on the quiet, everybody was okay with anything that you did. And when I started reading the Bible again in the light of that, the reason that Paul makes such an issue of sexuality. It's not because God's against sex. If God was against sex, he wouldn't have made it feel good. I've embarrassed you and you're afraid to laugh. (laughs) But God's not against sex. The issue is the devil will drive people into all kinds of sexuality so that there are no limits. Marriages in, in ancient Rome were primarily for convenience or uh, social status. They had really very little meaning at all. It's interesting to me how the Bible says in the last days men will forbid to marry. It doesn't say that homosexuality will be the issue or the end point of this progression of, of openness with sexual ideas and mores and such. It says that we'll get to the point where men will forbid to marry. Now what would bring us there? If everybody is doing whatever they want to with whoever they want to and marriage doesn't matter anymore. And that's the progression that Paul says the devil takes us on. That's what's happening in the world we're in. Now how far are we going to get there? Are we going to get there before Jesus gets back? Man, I hope not. I hope some of those things take place in their, um, in their entirety or in their, the, the worst part of it is after Jesus comes back for the church. I hope that's the way it is. I, I can't tell you that for sure. Scripture, but this is the progression that the devil takes you on, so that everything is okay, folks. The work of the devil in the school systems over the last twenty-five and thirty years has created this environment where the young people. Studies show that people under the age of thirty believe that the greatest issue that faces our world, the greatest problem that faces our world today, is related to gay marriage. Now you got terrorists shooting people up in our backyard. And gay marriage is the problem? Why in the world would people think that? 
because the work of the devil in the schools has indoctrinated the whole generation. That's not going to change. No matter how much we preach the truth, no matter how much we tell what the Bible says and so forth, that's not going to change. That's already happened. And so that becomes the baseline that other things are built on from this point forward. That's what Paul is talking about. He's talking about here's where the devil takes it. When you start thinking that your thoughts matter more than the truth, then your heart, your spirit becomes darkened and God gives you up to uncleanness. Um, Verse 24 again. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness. Some people have a hard time with this God gave them up. Well, it's God's fault. Everybody thinks it's God's fault. Everything's God's fault because God's in control. Where it says God gave them up, it literally means God let them have what they wanted. God giving them up just means God said, okay, that's your choice. God gives people up to hell. Not because he wants them to go, not because he even sends them, but because that's what people choose. God says, well, I made a better way. I sent my son to pay the price for you, but if that's your choice, okay. Wherefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves who changed the truth of God into a lie. Keep that in mind. Who changed the truth of God into a lie. Who changed the truth of God into a lie. That's what's happening so much in the world that we're living in today. It's the work of the devil. Words are being changed. The meaning of words are being changed to support what somebody wants to think or wants you to think or wants you to follow instead of accepting what's true. Folks, the truth doesn't change. No matter who, who says otherwise or who defines whatever terms they want to define, the truth never changes. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature, meaning the creation, more than the creator who is blessed forever. For this cause, verse 26, God gave them up. And again, allowed them according to their own choice. Gave them up to, up to a vile affections. For even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise, the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Now, this is the place where we're at in the world now. And because they did not want to retain God in their knowledge. That's why you have to shut the church up. If you're working according to the devil's agenda, it means that you have to shut the church up. Have you noticed that religious persecution now means persecuting Muslims? We can't think bad of Muslims because Muslims killed people in the, in the terrorist attack. And if anybody is, is discriminating against Muslims in any way whatsoever, our new attorney general has come out just the other day and said, I want to know about it. I will prosecute them to the fullest extent of the law. What about the people that are being persecuted because of their stand, biblical stand, not to bake a cake for a gay wedding? I guess that's different. But see, you can't, you can't allow the church to speak. You can't allow the church, and, and persecution's coming, folks. It is just now on the edge, but watch it get worse and worse and worse. Now, I hope that doesn't frighten you. It kind of excites me. I'm not going to change a thing about what I'm saying because it's not my idea. I'm just preaching the word, and I don't care if somebody says, well, you're just judging. I'm not judging anybody. 
God has already judged when he gave us the word. I'm just agreeing with him. If you don't like what I'm saying, take it up with him. But see, you can't allow, if you're the, if you're the government that's going the other way, you can't allow that to continue. You can't allow those voices to speak. So there'll be times, there'll be situations that'll arise, even like in the early days of the church, where the, the, the state, the powers that be, will, will threaten the churches not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus in the way that they do, uh, in the way that they consider to be intolerant speech. There may even come a point in time where the church, speaking the word of God, would be considered as hate speech. What are we going to do? I'm going to stick with the truth. Because the truth is the truth no matter who says what. If the truth wasn't true, I might change my opinion. But the truth is always true. So the Bible says, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over, again, their choice. God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And then it talks about how that the things, the sexual impurity and the sexual uh, uh, laxity anything goes ideas where sex is concerned leads to all kinds of other violent crimes and murders and deceits and, and other things but notice where the devil starts the devil starts with sexual thoughts sexual attacks and then it goes to other things it progresses to other forms of sin now back to ephesians chapter 4 i'm going to read again beginning in verse 17 this i say therefore and testify in the lord that you henceforth walk not as gentiles the unsaved walk in the vanity of their mind. One translation says in the manipulation of knowledge. I think that's interesting. In the manipulation of knowledge. We see a lot of that taking place today. In the manipulation of knowledge. Walk not as other as Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind. Having the understanding darkened. Now the understanding means spiritual understanding. Understanding darkened. Being alienated from the life of God. Why? In the world, do people that are unsaved take such a violent and, and hostile approach toward the truth? Because they're separated from the life of God. They're separated from the life of God. Now, remember, Paul, Paul identifies that these are people that once knew God in Romans chapter 1. He's not saying the unsaved are unsaved just because it was bad luck they never heard about Jesus. He's saying everybody has the opportunity to look at the creation and see there's got to be a creator. And that's the first step that if someone rejects God as the creator, can you say evolution? If God is rejected as the creator, then everything goes downhill spiritually from there. And they separate, man separates himself. It's not God's doing. Man separates himself from the life of God by rejecting the creation of what we know of as the creation account in Genesis. That's why the Bible starts off in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God. The basis for everything else is that in the beginning, there was one and only one thing that existed and his name is God. If you don't believe that, you're sunk on everything else. Well, Pastor Mike, are you saying that a Christian can't believe in evolution? No, a Christian can believe in anything that he wants to. But he knows it's wrong. He knows it's wrong. 
Folks, the Lord said something, the Holy Ghost said something to me the, uh, the other day in the time of prayer, and I haven't been able to get away, with it, away from it. He said this. He said, Godless men, I was praying for the country. He said, Godless men and foolish Christians accept the devil's agenda. We just heard the other day of some people that we have a lot of respect for in the ministry that voted for Obama twice. And that hurt my heart. I'm just telling you, that just hurt my heart. I thought, oh, dear God, no. How could they not have seen it? I know they love God. They're doing a great work to get people saved and healed and filled with the Holy Ghost. Godless men and foolish Christians accept devil's agenda. I don't, that will probably never change. Okay, I'm, I promise I'm going to get to verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you henceforth walk not as Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated, separated from the life of God. That's what spiritual death is, is separation from God. Being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them. Now, this is not ignorance that can be excused because they chose to be ignorant. From the, through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. The Bible says that Satan is the God of this world and he blinds the minds of them that, 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 lest they should believe. Through the blindness of their heart who being past feeling. This word past feeling means feeling no pain. In other words, it's the same thing Paul was writing to Timothy about First Timothy chapter 4 where he talks about people having their conscience seared as with a hot iron. You know, if you get a blister and then it calluses over, you can stick yourself with a pen in that place and not feel a thing. Well, you can do that spiritually too. You can ignore the spirit of God. You can ignore the truth to the point where you have no spiritual feeling. Your conscience doesn't, doesn't bother you anymore about right and wrong. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness, sexual immorality, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if so be that you have heard of him. Actually, it's not heard of him, it's heard him. Christianity is the only thing that says you've got to know the, the, the founder to understand the religion. You don't have to know Muhammad to understand Islam. Just go kill people and you're okay. That was a little harsh. You don't have to know Buddha to know Buddhism. But Paul is saying if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to walk in the Christian faith, you're going to have to know Jesus. He's the only one of them that you can know, by the way. But you have not so learned Christ, if so that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, I want you to notice something, folks. There are very, very few times in the letters that Paul writes that he uses the name Jesus alone. He talks about our Lord Jesus Christ. He talks about uh, Jesus, our Savior, Jesus Christ, our Savior. But very, very seldom does Paul ever use Jesus alone. Why is that? Well, it comes, it goes down to the, uh, or comes down to the thing that he's talking about, about being renewed in your mind. Keep that in mind and we'll come back to it in just a moment. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man which is corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I want you to notice something. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, uh, is it verse 7 I think it is? Where he says, we have the mind of Christ. 
Nowhere does the Bible say that we have the mind of Jesus. Why is that? Well, if you had the mind of Jesus, then you'd know everything about ancient Nazareth. You'd know all the back streets of ancient Nazareth. You'd know the, the, the cultural events and the, the situations in the world that he lived in in that day. You'd know everything about carpentry. You'd know everything about the territory around the Sea of Galilee. That would be the mind of Jesus. And so often, people have a hard time, Christians have a hard time accepting the things that the Bible says that we are to do. Jesus said, the works that I do shall you do also. The same works uh, and even greater works that shall you do because they're going to my Father. Well, why does the church have such a hard time with that? Because they're trying to think with the mind of Jesus. You don't have the mind of Jesus. You've got the mind of Christ. You've got the mind of the anointed one who did the works, who said, I'm not the one doing the works by myself or of myself. It's the mind of Christ that enables you to think beyond human limitations to what God's plan of redemption accomplished. That's the mind of Christ. And it's only with the mind of Christ that you're going to be able to put off the old man. Now, let me, let me make a qualification or a clarification about that. Paul said in Romans chapter 6 that the old man has been crucified with Christ. Paul wrote to the, uh, the uh, what's their name? Colossians. Paul wrote to the Colossians in chapter 3. And he said that they have put off the old man. This is not the same thing he's saying here. This word off does not mean to remove his clothing like... It does in the other places. It means to put away the old man. See, what he's saying is, be who God's made you to be. The old man has been put off by the work of Jesus on the cross, the fact that you made Jesus your Lord and Savior. Now live up to it. That's the practical application that he's giving in chapter 4. Live up to the new man that you've been made in Christ Jesus. How do we do that? By being renewed in the spirit of our mind. In other words, by taking upon ourselves the mind of Christ. What causes the mind of Christ to be developed in us? The knowledge of God through his word. The knowledge of God through his word. So he's telling us to put away the old man that died with Jesus. Don't keep living according to the old man because that's who you've been set free from. Put him away. Don't just set him aside to pick up and use later on when you... Yield to temptation, but put it away once and for all. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and that you put on the new man. Notice you cannot put on the new man unless you renew your mind. This is what Paul was talking about to Romans in the Romans letter in chapter 12, verse 2. He said, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed to what? Transformed to live like the new man. That you may prove, literally experience, what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. It's only the renewed mind living according to the new man, the Jesus life, the life of God that came to us through the sacrifice of Jesus our Savior. It's only through living according to that new man that you're going to experience the, the intent, the purpose, and the will of God for you. It's the only way you'll be able to experience the blessings of God in His fullness. Now remember Paul just told us in the previous chapter... That the eternal wisdom of God, the, the wisdom of God that was established before the foundation of the world and kept as a mystery throughout all the ages, was that man would be this new creature and exercise the same dominion over the devil that Jesus did when he was here on the earth. And that's the way for us to glorify God as individuals and as a church family. To live above the works of the devil. 
not to succumb to the temptations of the devil. Oh, we're going to be tempted. We're going to be attacked. Those things are going to come. But to stand strong in faith and overcome those temptations and overcome those attacks. And that's what brings God glory. So be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God, by God in other words, has been created in righteousness and true holiness. So if you're going to put on the new man, what are you going to be operating according to? Righteousness and true holiness. How do we do that? What does this new man look like? Again, we, if we stop right here and just talk about the theory of it, we would say, wow, that's, that's wonderful. Yes, we should live according to the new man. But what does that mean? What does that look like? might mean one thing to me and something else to you. What does living according to the new man look like? What is putting off the old man and putting, on, putting away the old man and putting on the new man look like? Notice the first characteristics that he mentions in verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor. The first thing he mentions is, is the Christian's relationship to the truth. I don't know if you know this, folks, but Christianity has a different relationship with the truth than any and every other religion in the, on the earth. Buddhism has what it calls temporal truth and ultimate truth. Temporal truth is basically whatever people say on the earth or whatever accepted as scientific fact here on the earth. Ultimate truth can only be attained through meditation. Now, in meditation, well, what, they, what they mean by meditation is not what the Bible means when it talks about meditation. Buddhist meditation is you open your mind up and you allow yourself to be guided to whatever this ultimate truth is. Now, Buddhism makes no distinction between evil spirits and God. And so the Buddhists don't know who they're being led by. They just know when they attain this place of meditation, this place of serenity and meditation, they're being guided to what they call ultimate truth. In many places, it's error in being led into hell. Islam has a different relationship to the truth. Islam says you can lie if it furthers the cause of Islam. That's why you've got so many people out here that are speaking condemnation out of one side of their mouth for the terrorism attacks, and then they're going into the mosque and speaking in Arabic and saying we need to do more of this. Because it's okay with them. It's okay with their religion. It's the principle called tagiyah. Which says a Muslim can lie if it furthers the cause of Islam. To which I want to ask, how can you believe anything they're saying then? That's one of the reasons why we get this notion that, there is a, that Islam is a religion of peace. Well, the, you, can't, you can't judge all Muslims by the terrorist attack. You can't say that ISIS is representative of Islam. Well, ISIS is representative of the Quran. I've read the Quran and know that to be true. So truth is this, is this moving target for everything except Christianity. And the first thing that the Bible tells you is to live according to the truth. Speak the truth with every man. Live honestly with every man. The Bible tells you to be honest even if it costs you. A good name is to rather be desired than riches. You can't have a good name unless you're honest. First thing the Bible says about being the new man, living according to the new man, is to live Honestly, according to the truth. Now, the truth is not, is not a variable for Christians like it is for everybody else. There's no my truth and your truth. That phrase has always bothered me. 
well, this is my truth. Well, you're an idiot. Because the truth is always the truth. But we know what the truth is. Jesus told us what the truth is in John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them, the disciples, believers. In his prayer to the Father, he said, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Verse 26, be ye angry and sin not. Yeah, that's always a favorite. Be angry and sin not. Let me, uh, let me read something to you here from Psalm 4, verse 4. Psalm 4, 4 says, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Paul is quoting Psalm 4, where he says, Be angry and sin not. And from the Septuagint, it's even more of a direct quotation. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. It was the Bible of Jesus' day and Paul's day as well. So what, you, what uh, Paul is saying is it's not a sin to be angry. Jesus got angry. Jesus was angry when he chased the money changers out of the temple. The question is not or the issue is not whether or not we're angry. The question is what do we allow our anger to cause us to do? What action do we take because of the anger that we have? And the thing that he says about the new man, first and foremost, is speak the truth. Put away lying, speak the truth. We need to be people that say the truth even if it costs us, even if it hurts us. even if, No matter what the cost is, we need to be so honest and so truthful that everybody can see that we're transparent. Don't you love the way that the world talks about transparency and lies at every turn? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the real thing. Yeah, but nobody else does it that way. That's why we need to. Second thing he says is be angry and sin not. He doesn't say don't be angry. He says when you are angry, don't let it lead you into sin. How do you do that? By exercising a time control over your anger. Let me read Psalm 4-4 again. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. Ephesians 4.26 again, be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. What that's saying, the last part of the verse is how you keep your anger from leading you into sin. It's saying exercise the time control. Don't let anger fester. Don't let it go overnight. Why? Well, I've heard scientific studies that say here's what happens when you go to bed angry and you wake up the next morning and you don't deal with your anger beforehand and so forth. And all those things may be true, but that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's not talking about because it has a physiological effect on your body. He's saying this. He's saying the way to keep anger from leading you into a sinful action is very simply this, to stop the period of time or limit the period of time that you dwell on what you're angry about. Jesus chased the money changers out of the temple, let it go, and healed the sick. Jesus didn't say, he didn't stomp around saying, well, I know I'm supposed to heal the sick, but these guys make me so mad. (laughs) He moved on. He dealt with it and moved on. That's what the Bible is saying. 
Psalm 4.4 brings out a little bit more in, in uh, uh, relation to this where it says communion with your own heart and upon your bed and be still. In other words, it's saying you're not going to be able to have fellowship with God while you're angry. So whatever's caused you anger, even if it's righteous anger like with Jesus, deal with it, move on so that you can fellowship with God. In the Jewish tradition, they endeavor, or they're supposed to end every day. I don't know how many people practice this. But they're taught end every day in prayer. Settle everything else so that the last thing you do is pray. I think that's where praying by our bedside uh, was started. I used to do that as a kid. I don't know where I learned that. I don't know if my mom taught me or the church taught me or whoever taught me. But I, somehow or another, the last thing I'd do before I got in bed was I'd pray. Well, the principle is clear everything else out so that you can pray and be open with God at the la- as the last thing in your day. So be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Verse 27, neither give place to the devil. What's he saying? The word place is the word ground. It's saying very simply this. Your anger will be used by the devil if you don't limit its time period. It's only by limiting the time. that the devil can't use it against you to exploit his purposes in your life. Next thing he mentions, here's the the third characteristic. He said, let him that stole steal no more. Isn't it sad that you'd have to tell Christians quit lying and quit stealing? But it's part of the old man. It's part of the old man. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor. Now, there's some interesting things here in this verse. Let him, rather let him labor working with his hands that thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needs it. Paul seems to be saying that God's plan for blessing, for prosperity, for whatever in your life is through a job. I know not everybody wants to hear that. But that's what Paul seems to be saying. And he says, let him that's a thief quit stealing and start working. Not just so that he has enough for himself, but so that he can become a giver. Why? Because being a giver is the opposite of being a stealer or a thief, a taker. We're talking about new man versus old man. The old man wants to take for himself. The new man wants to give to others. Next thing he says in verse 29, let no corrupt communication. The word corrupt means morally worthless. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. I want to put verse 30 together with this. And grieve not the Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. In other words, he's saying your speech can either bring the blessings of God through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, or it can grieve the Holy Spirit because you're talking about the wrong things. So what should we judge our speech by? The Bible says in the Old Testament book of Psalms, it says, set watch upon your mouth. doesn't mean put your timepiece up there. It means watch what you say. Guard, every, every, guard your lips from letting any word come out of your mouth that doesn't meet this qualification. Does it help or edify or build up whoever is going to hear it? If not, don't say it. Yeah, but it might be true. doesn't matter. There are a lot of things that are true that don't meet the qualification of being edifying. So what do we do with those true things that aren't edifying? Let them go. 
Because the Bible says that God is not grieved by your thoughts. He's grieved by your words. Some people have the idea that if they think of something, they might as well say it because it's the same difference. It's not. Thoughts that are contrary to the word that aren't spoken or acted on die unborn. That's what doubt is. Doubt is a thought that comes to your mind that contradicts God's word. If you don't speak it, if you don't act on it, then it doesn't, it never gets planted in the ground, like seed into the ground. You plant into your spiritual ground through the words of your mouth. And it's interesting that the Bible doesn't say that stealing grieves God. It says that corrupt communication grieves the Holy Spirit. It seems to indicate that we have a greater responsibility where our words are concerned than anything else. Why? Because by your words you're justified and by your words you're condemned. According to what Jesus said. Then he starts on what we should do and how we should operate in verses 31 and 32. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Now some people want the definitions of these things. Well, what does bitterness mean? What does clamor mean? What does wrath and anger mean? What is evil speaking? And most of the time I found that the people that want the definitions are trying to get as close to the edge of the cliff as they can. Anything that you think might be bitter or qualifies bitterness, don't have anything to do with it. Anything you think has to do with wrath, meaning sinful actions to anger, don't have anything to do with it. Let all anger be put away from you. Now, what about Jesus? Well, there are things that righteous anger will lead us to do that are in line with what the Word of God says. Those are, those are different. But that's not what most of us deal with. If it comes close, don't have anything to do with it. What about evil speaking? What does that mean? You know what it means. You know when you're getting close. The Holy Spirit will warn you. The Holy Spirit will witness to your heart. Your conscience will tell you. In other words, because you're trying to live according to the new man, stay far away from sinful actions and thoughts and attitudes as you can. And instead, verse 32, be kind one to another. Be kind one to another. Notice what the new man does. The new man operates in kindness. Be kind one to another. Tender-hearted. Not hard-hearted. Not a seared conscience but tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Forgiving one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. Paul knows what the Lord's Prayer is. And this is not what he's saying. You remember the Lord's Prayer is, forgive and God will forgive you. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying we should forgive because God has forgiven us. Since God has already forgiven us, we should operate in the same level of forgiveness that he did toward us. We should, toward others, operate in the same level of forgiveness that he did toward us. Now, let me ask you a question about your forgiveness. Did you deserve it when he forgave you? Were you acting kindly toward God when he forgave you? Then what should be the standard of the mark for us forgiving others? The same one that God used for us. Forgive people that don't deserve it. 
Forgive people that don't treat you well. Forgive people that don't want your forgiveness. Forgive the way that God forgave you. That's what the new man does. Now, what's the benefit of these things? This is one way. Remember, Jesus said, by your love shall all men know you're my disciples. That love is this new man operating according to the new man that Paul is talking about here. He's saying one of the benefits, one of the blessings of walking in love or walking according to the new man, putting away the old man that you've been redeemed from, is that not only will the world see who you are, but this is the way that you exercise victory over the devil. You ever notice how bothered the devil was about Job? I know we hear a lot about the story of Job, in some circles at least. People talk about Job this and Job that and what God allowed Job to do and all this kind of stuff. And none of that seems, none of that is it's a story. But one thing about the story that's always interested me is how bothered the devil was about Job's blessing. The devil presents himself before God and God says, hey, have you seen my servant Job? The devil says, well, yeah, you built a hedge around him. Well, yeah. That's what operating according to the word does. But the devil wants more. He says, take down that hedge and he'll curse you. Take away his stuff and he'll curse you. God doesn't do anything about it. God says, well, everything he has is in your hands. The devil goes and attacks Job's stuff. Job's faithful still. The devil comes back before the Father. God says, see Job? He says, yeah, but that's only because you haven't done anything to his body. Afflict his body and he'll curse you. God says, well, it's not up to me. Everything he is is in your hands except his life. So he brings balls and, and afflictions upon Job's body. What does Job do? Doesn't say a word. Doesn't turn against God. It's only when he has well-meaning friends that show up to tell him what a louse he is that Job gets into error. But the devil is really, really bothered by the devil, by God's protection of Job. But if that was the case under the, well, I started to say under the old covenant, we don't even know when Job happened. One of the things about the book of Job that we don't know and we can't explain is we don't know when it occurred. We know that Job was not a, 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 a part of Abraham's lineage, so he wasn't part of the old covenant. We know he wasn't after Moses, so he wasn't a part of the law. So what covenant was Job under? I don't have an answer. Had to be before Abraham. Had to be between Noah and Abraham. Past that, I don't know. So what covenant was, was Job operating under? I don't have an answer. And if you can't answer that, you can't answer all the, the specifics and the particulars about what happened and why. So what do we know about the book of Job? We know that God didn't hurt him. The devil did that. God didn't take his stuff. The devil did that. But when God got Job back over to the place where he wasn't feeling sorry for himself and accusing God wrongly, God gave him twice as much as he had before. Now, the part of the book of Job that I wish that's missing, that I wish was there, is I wish that God had had one final conversation with the devil after he gave him twice as much as he started with. Because now that hedge of protection is back up around Job. 
What do you think the devil does and how do you think he operates when you've got that level of protection around you? We're redeemed. Joe Budden. We've got so much more than anybody had in the Old Testament. We've got so much more than anybody had in Jesus' day. We've been recreated. We've been made a new species of being by the life of God for one and only one purpose. And that's not to spend eternity in heaven with the Father. If that were the purpose, God would have taken you to heaven as soon as you got saved. The purpose during this age is to exercise Jesus' victory over the devil in our lives. We do that by putting on the new man. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the life that we have in Christ Jesus. What a privilege, Father, it is to grow in the knowledge of who you are and who we are in Christ. Thank you, Father, that our old man has been crucified with Christ, dead and buried with him. Thank you that we have put on the new man by being born again, recreated by the Spirit of God. Father, I pray that we would all live up to Paul's instruction by the Spirit of God and put away once and for all the old man and its deeds. That we would live according to the new life. That we would be who we have been made. That we would live up to the vocation, the calling of God through Jesus on us. Father, what a privilege it is to know the love of God within us. To be able to walk in that love toward other people. Therefore, we determine, Father, to be kind one to another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another even as Christ has forgiven us. To speak the truth in love with one another. To let no corrupt communication depart from our mouth. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're our guide, you're our helper, you're our comforter, and you're our strengthener and our standby. Thank you, Father, for the life of God that we have in you. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Let's all stand together. Let's make a confession before we go. Say this after me from your heart, not just because I'm saying the words, but let your heart agree with it. I'm a new man in Christ Jesus. I'm indwelt by the life of God. Recreated by the Holy Ghost who leads me and guides me and orders my steps. I have victory over all the works of the devil in the name of Jesus. I choose to walk in that victory by faith in the word of God to defeat the devil on every hand and live above his works. This is who I am in Christ Jesus. Amen. 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 God bless you. Thank you for being with us. Come on back and be with us tonight if you can.